Hello, and welcome to Rocket Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace and Fastmail and Privacy. Wow. I'm Simone de Rochefort. I'm the senior video producer at Polygon, and I'm here today with Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack, Christina Warren, senior cloud advocate at Microsoft, and our very special guest, Christopher Mims, tech journalist at the Wall Street Journal and author of Arriving Today. Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We are very excited to have you on today and talk about your book. As I said, it is called Arriving Today. It is an investigation into online shopping, supply chain management, transportation, and how everything in the world works together to satisfy the need for the toilet paper that you just ordered to arrive, comma, Today, the book uh, has come out in the wake of, as you mentioned in the very first chapter, the biggest supply chain upset since the oil crisis in the 70s. And in that chapter, you very vividly lay out everything that happened, one could say everything that went wrong. Uh, as the pandemic shook every industry in early 2020. But of course, you started this book long before that. So tell us about Arriving Today and the genesis of your reporting on this topic. I got really interested in this topic because I walked into a warehouse full of robots uh, in a suburb outside of London, and I was shocked. I'd never seen anything so automated in my life. It looked like one of those scenes from the matrix after Neo wakes up. And this was a warehouse owned by a company called Ocado. They do grocery delivery. Um, I don't think we're that familiar with them in the U S they do have a deal with Kroger. So it's coming here, but they build these warehouses where, you know, literally, you know, less than five humans oversee hundreds of robots that um, pick all of your groceries and then hand them off to humans to be, Packed. It's kind of an even more complicated and advanced version of what Amazon does in its warehouses. And I was just so shocked that I didn't know that this existed, that this was as automated as the most automated factories I'd ever seen in my life. And I just decided that I had to know more if people were kind of revolutionizing the way that things get picked and packed and ultimately delivered to us, you know, that had implications for how we buy stuff for retail and for how millions of Americans and, you know, hundreds of millions of people all over the world are employed. So so you started working on this book before the pandemic. And you talk about in the first chapter, you know, like some of the changes that the pandemic had. But I was just kind of curious from your perspective, like how did that change maybe like how you went about reporting the book you know, or, or did it have any impact on, on how you were um, writing the book? Because you were writing it kind of when the supply chain and when a lot of these things that we've come to rely on were very different than what they'd been, you know, months earlier. Yeah, it very much transformed the framing of the book, but I had always intended to write an explainer. I wanted to write something that was durable that, you know, somebody would pick up 10 years from now and get value out of. So I was lucky that I didn't have to completely refactor everything that I was doing, but it ended up becoming, you know, writing an explainer of what was going on as it was uh, really being put to the test. And, um, you know, now sort of breaking down in some ways. 100%. Um, you know, I love this book because you really found a way to turn supply chain into a real narrative. And you did something that's really cool. You bought a USB charger uh, online and you kind of followed it through the entire system from, you know, uh, like loading on the dirigible, the ship, parking the ship, getting it, you know, off the port, all of that. So just, I mean, we're going to kind of get into more specifics, but just broad view what 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 was kind of your thinking there? Did you fly out? What how did all of that work? Yeah, for every part of the book, you know, I wanted to be there. What you know, when and where I could. It's it's impossible even before the pandemic to get onto a ship any longer. So you know, Rose George's excellent book, ninety percent of everything, is kind of the last word on that on being a journalist on a container ship. Um, but I was able to <laughs> visit ports. You know, I went. And saw how all of that works in Southeast Asia and Vietnam, which I chose because so much manufacturing mm-hmm. moves there. I mean, we a lot of things that we think are made in China are actually made in Vietnam. Right. <laughs> including AirPods <laughs> uh, and soon iPhones. 
and all of the, you know, Android devices and Samsung devices. Um, you know, and then I just kept tracing it. I just kept following the thread. So, you know, it, it starts in Southeast Asia. Um, you know, it gets on a container ship. You know, I found somebody who was really willing to, to be a deep source for me. Uh, somebody who does these beautiful time lapses on YouTube and uh, is based in Hong Kong and is a third mate uh, who, you know, was willing to sort of chronicle his life for me as he crosses the ocean. You know, and then I went to the Port of L.A., which um, it turns out to be this crazy dance between humans and increasing amounts of automation. And there's sort of a lot of lessons for us there, I think, about where that's going and where what the role of people will be in an increasingly automated society. Um, you know, and from there it goes into warehouses and then it gets on a truck. And, you know, long haul trucking is its own big, you know, 3.5 million truckers in America deal. Um, and that ended up being uh, much more of a kind of nomad land type story. You know, the that incredible yeah. movie is mm -hmm. uh, it's based on a nonfiction book, which is fantastic yes. and radically different from the movie and well worth reading and one of my inspirations. It's written by Jess Bruder. Uh, uh, just for, for listeners out there, it's a great book. Sorry, go on. Yeah. And then, you know, you get to the Amazon warehouse and then you get into territory where, um, uh, you know, I was inspired by journalists like Emily Gindelsberger, who actually went and worked in an Amazon warehouse. She also worked on a uh, call center and uh, at a McDonald's. And she draws a lot of parallels uh, between how these places are organized, how technology is used to speed up the work, and how management policies that were invented, you know, a century ago are used to make those jobs pretty brutal in a lot of ways. Um, so all along the way, because I'm a technology reporter, I wanted to talk about what is the technology involved? How does that shape the nature of the work? How does it intensify the work and and you know what are dehumanizing effects and then also what's the efficiency that results which is of course why this gets done it's why jeff bezos is intermittently the richest human being on the planet um and then from there i went into the middle mile which i didn't even know existed which is a whole <laughs> other crazy thing it's the most automated part of this whole thing it's the most robots and then you go to the last mile which is you know a ups delivery station or something like that and it gets on a truck and there it's this, again, this incredible dance between really complicated technology. UPS has some of the most sophisticated algorithms in the world, actually, to do its route planning. And, and yet, you know, it's still so reliant on the efficiency of that driver who has to really learn their um, route and, and the way to be a, a UPS driver. And there's a note of hope there, too, because, of course, UPS is fully unionized, and that's why UPS remains so efficient. <laughs> So, so one of my very favorite uh, chapters in this book, it it you start with this uh, pilot of a ship. His name is John. Uh, you know, he's he's given the task of docking this twelve hundred foot ship called the Costco, and like he's been given these. They they hand out these pilot cards to him, like telling him the horsepower and and details on speed and all of that. Can you walk our listeners through this? Because I found this to be like shockingly engaging. This idea of parking a ship. Yeah, harbor pilots have some of the strangest jobs in the world because you know every single thing, you know, ninety percent of everything that we own comes to us on a ship, and. For every single one of those objects that you're probably looking at now around whatever room you're in, um, someone had to risk their life in order to get that to you. And, and what that means is, you know, a harbor pilot is this very skilled trade. You know, they, they, they work these crazy shifts like all hours of the day and they um, get taken out on these, these high speed boats where they meet these ships, some of which are literally as long as the Empire State Building is tall and similar dimensions, you know, 200,000 tons total. And they have to kind of like do this nimble little hop off of the ship onto what is still literally a rope ladder, which they climb <laughs> up into the ship. Um, and they have to time it just right so they don't get dunked and get sucked into the propeller. Um, yeah, it's insane. I mean, your, your odds of dying over the career of being a harbor pilot are, I think, one in 20. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, um, and they get paid a lot of money as a result. You know, I mean, also because they're very skilled, you know, and then they go up there and they never touch the controls. They get this sort of dance card that tells them everything, all the characteristics of the ship. And then they have to 
very delicately navigate these incredibly narrow channels. Like if you're going into the port of LA, it's, you know, imagine a block that's almost as big as the dimensions of a rain gutter and you're pushing it down the rain gutter. Like the clearance in this metaphor would be like less than a centimeter on each side. And it's pushing out such an incredible volume of water that, you know, if you're not careful, the ship will just get sucked off to the side or just bang into something, which is what happened to the Ever Given, by the way. Just a little bit of wind <laughs> blew that thing. <laughs> and, and, and that's why the, the, the Suez Canal was backed up. Yeah. My favorite story of 2021. Yeah, that big chunky boy that just got stuck <laughs> in the Suez Canal. <laughs> you know, so harbor pilots have to do this over and over and over again. And um, and then, you know, they have to like, you, they have to, they're radioing with the tugs at the same time. And they have to just very delicately kind of, you know, in some cases, literally parallel park this thing, just slide it in. It's like, it's like when you see a, um, a trick, a stunt driver, like do that crazy uh, parking job where they like spin the car sideways and drift into a parallel parking spot instead of doing it like a normal <laughs> human being. But you're doing this with a ship that's 1200 feet long. And at the very last second, you have to balance all these forces because all that water that is pushing against the ship suddenly evacuates either side out of the narrow space between the ship and the dock. And then it creates a vacuum and it sucks the ship out of the dock and that can, you know, cause it to bang into the side and rupture the ship and all this other stuff. So it's this incredibly delicate thing. And they literally at the end of the, of all this navigating have to get it to within, you know, like 10 centimeters of a target because there are <laughs> oh these hookups God. between the ship and the dock. It's so crazy. I mean, this is why these harbor pilots it takes them decades and decades of practice and experience. And then that's, you know, that whole sequence is just what happens just to get a ship into the harbor. And then this crazy dance happens to get all the containers off. It's, it's this mad scramble. Somebody compared it to throwing a wedding every single time because there's oh. all this weird contingency. And those, so these crane operators have to pull all the containers off and then the nest get dumped in the port and sorted. So, you know, we just, we take all this for granted because it just happens and it's invisible. But, you know, to me, it's kind of like the complexity and the majesty of the internet, but you know, it's all the stuff, it's all the atoms that we have to move between countries and across oceans. And, and the process of doing that has just been so refined over centuries that, you know, this is, this is kind of the end point where all, all this technology that none of us think about, cause it's not consumer technology gets applied in one way or another. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love this. Um, I actually, I, logistics are like one of my secretly kind of one, one of my favorite things to nerd out on for this very reason. I'm curious, you know, you talked about like the human role and kind of, I guess the push pull between like the, the place that, that humans have, you know, you're talking about these, um, you know, these, these pilots, but you're also talking about, you know, like the, the truck drivers. And then there are, uh, there's a, a varying role in the, the manufacturing facilities themselves. How likely do you, do you see it as technology? Because like, for instance, like with truck driving, one of the big things has been with, with LIDAR is to have self-driving cars. And one of the big things there is that they would like to be able to have more long haul trucks. Um, so, so that, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, trucks can uh, can drive uh, longer periods of time. Um, what do you think the likelihood is actually of, I guess, the machines displacing the human element, um, you know, in, in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years? Or, or do you think that after, after doing, doing your research that there is always going to be this inherent human component, no matter how much we automate and how much of this behind the scenes technology there is? Yeah, it really varies by, you know, what part of manufacturing or the supply chain you're talking about. Like there's some like paradoxically, the more that Amazon automates, the more humans they need to hire. And partly that's just because there's just more and more demand for everything right. that they're doing. Um, so that that's kind of like a funny effect there in terms of trucking and automation and, and, and driving automation here. I actually think we're at the point where it has how fast we adopt it has absolutely nothing to do with the technology and I'm actually really kind of flummoxed that the people building it aren't trying to start the conversation that I'm about to describe, but the technology is pretty good. Right. You know, is it better than humans? It's hard to evaluate it under, you know, making apples to apples comparison. Tesla likes to say, oh, you know, like every mile driven under, you know, full, uh, full self-driving 
you actually have better results than when people have it switched off. And it's like, yeah, but those aren't the same miles. Like those are highway miles versus <laughs> driving around cities. I mean, most accidents happen close to home or in parking lots. So you can't make a comparison. As for trucks, you know, they're giant, they're lethal. We, if we want automated driving to happen, we actually have to create some kind of legal standard mm-hmm. where we say, we know accidents are going to happen. We know they're going to be all over the news. And what level of lethality compared to human drivers are we willing to accept? Mm-hmm. And if we don't actually decide that collectively, I actually think these companies are going to, I mean, a lot of them are going to run out of money, but they're never actually going to deploy without a human oversight. Because if the bar is the moment we have an accident, we are Uber's self-driving uh, you know, uh, division and, and, and we have to shut it down and sell it off, then none of them will ever deploy. Right. And I've had deep, deep conversations with the people building this stuff for too simple and everything. And the the challenge that they have is you get 99% of the way there. The next 1% is harder than the previous 99%. And the next 0.1% is harder than Mm -hmm. the decimal before it. Yeah. And so at some point it's like, well, how many of these zeros do you have to, you know, n- nail down before you're totally confident. And so as a result, you know, people send me links and they're like, oh, they're already doing this and everything. And it's like, no, nobody's doing it. They're all doing it with supervision in one way or another. And that's going to be the case until we decide collectively, like, here's the standard they have to meet. Mm-hmm. Unionization, especially at Amazon, has been something that has come up a lot as we've been um, as we've been making this show. And uh, you have written about the like Amazon's high turnover rate and, as you said just now, how they're in fact hiring more people to oversee all of these machines. And you say that unionization at Amazon is almost impossible. Can you talk a little bit about that and uh, why that might be the case? Yeah, so unionization in general is, is, is just it's always been very difficult. It's gotten more and more difficult because of the way that we've changed our labor laws. I mean, Brianna, like, you know, as somebody who's involved in politics, you'll, you probably understand and appreciate this more than I do, but like, we have really weakened the laws that, you know, protect labor in this country and allow for unionization. Uh Um, So, uh, you know, a big part of this is just that shift has happened. Uh, Another part, though, and this is a technique used by Amazon. It's used by Walmart. I mean, come on. Why have Walmart workers never unionized? (laughs) You know, it's used by fast food chains. It's used by call centers. um, And uh, what they do is having a pretty brutal work environment with high turnover is a feature and not a bug. Because what you can do is then it's impossible for people to stick around long enough to organize. And as long as you have used technology to de-skill that job sufficiently so you can train somebody to do it, you know, in Amazon, they can train you to do that job in less than a day. Um, You know, most other places, for most of those other jobs I mentioned, that's the case as well. Then they can just keep sucking in more and more people. And of course, the problem now that they're having, (laughs) though, is people are like, I've had enough. I got my stimulus check and I made some life decisions and I'm gone. And that's why, you know, tons and tons of, of, of these jobs, you know, are just going wanting no matter how much they raise the wages. And, and it's partly because they just don't get that the reason they can't get workers and the reason they can't retain them isn't money. It's the working conditions. Right. So I, speaking of working conditions, <laughs> I want to talk more about robots because, you know, like, I feel like the clips that go viral on Twitter are like, you know, Boston Dynamics machine doing parkour. Like, <laughs> you talk about, you talk about like the, 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 you talk about everything from like the, the port of Los Angeles, this one specific uh, sector of that, that's very automated to like these utterly, uh, uh, uninteresting but very efficient robots at Amazon. So can you kind of walk us, like, what's the coolest robot you saw? And what's the, like, the most, uh, like, unimpressive but critical robot you saw? (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the coolest robot I saw was just the biggest. And I was like, whoa, this is awesome. (laughs) This is like some kaiju stuff. What was it? What was it? They built this enormous robot at um the Trapac terminal at the port of LA that just like 
just kind of like deadlifts uh, or like clean and jerks these 80,000 up to 80,000 pound uh, shipping containers and then just kind of like whoop, very smoothly puts them onto um, trains because um, it turns out that like, you know, if we had to rely on trucks for everything, like we'd really be sunk. So the Port of L.A. a few years ago spent like some insane amount of money, but it was between two and four billion dollars to build a buried train track. And this thing just slings containers onto it all day long and then whoosh, the trains just whisk them out. It's like um, Elon Musk's Hyperloop, except it actually works. <laughs> um <laughs> So that one was just so big. And I think it is the biggest robot in the world, except for maybe an automated mining truck. So technically. So that was cool. Um, You know, I mean, it was also cool at the complete other end of the spectrum to see how utterly mundane Starship Robotics delivery robots had become on the campus of George Mason University in um, Virginia. Like the, the, the college students there, this was before COVID, who were, you know, just getting like their snacks and their lunch and whatever else from these robots, they could not care less. Those robots were invisible and they're just stepping over them as they were like navigating the quad. <laughs> but those robots work so well. It's one of the few um, fully automated systems I've ever seen where I'm like, oh, yep, they're actually going to make money on this. And that's why they keep expanding. But it was just like one of those things where like the robot is super cool the first time you see it. And the second time you see it, it's infrastructure. It's like you're looking at a telephone pole. You no longer Ooh. care that there's this little robot dog ferrying somebody's, you know, latte around. And that was to me such a funny lesson in the way that like technology is always just whatever's new. In the moment, it's not technology anymore. It's just like yawn infrastructure. <laughs> It's so funny because that's kind of the feeling that I had as I was reading uh, the opening chapter about the early days of the pandemic. It somehow felt so far away. And I'm alive. I can remember (laughs) all of that. But it genuinely had just kind of faded into the background for me, like those early days of going to buy lentils and (laughs) buying two packs of paper towels because who knows when. I I find that idea so fascinating. Um, not really a question there, but that's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. It's it's weird. I mean, the last year, I don't know how you feel about it, but it feels to me like it uh, it both didn't happen and that everything that happened before it was 10 years ago. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, we, we had a time skip, essentially. <laughs> <gasps> so final question for you. This is... Uh, this is so silly, but you wrote so many hundreds and hundreds of pages about the journey of this USB charger. As it like crosses the world, it gets unloaded, and and all of that. What what did you do with it? Do you keep it in a glass case next to your computer? <laughs> are you scared you're going to lose it, or your kids are going to like borrow it one day and break it? What what did you do with it? No, I mean, well, I should be clear that that because I couldn't, it's it's kind of impossible to track. It's almost impossible to track a single shipping container, much less a mm-hmm. single item. So I abstracted it a little bit, and I was like, "Here is the you know the the path that represents the the most likely path for all such objects." Um, and it's so, like the companion cube from Portal. Like I'm just yeah. bonding with it. Well, it actually, it actually started. It actually started in reverse, which is that I just picked up an Anker charger one day, and on the back it said "Made in Vietnam," and I was like, and I had been, you know, trying to figure out what object I was going to trace, and because <laughs> you know, Planet Money already did like the T-shirt. There's a whole book also on that, hmm. and so I was like, it's got to be something that, you know, represents, you know, what is something that is just tricky enough to make that if you make it, you're kind of on the cusp. You're really like, you could be the next Taiwan or whatever, mm-hmm. but we just take it for granted. And that was why I chose that object. I was like, huh, why is this made in Vietnam? What's going on in Vietnam? And that just, it actually kind of, it was the reverse of that. And sadly, I don't know if I still have that. Brianna was really a fan of that charger. <laughs> You and the charger lives in all of us, Brianna. <laughs> no, here's what it is. Pick up any, if you have an iPhone, yeah. pick up any one of those chargers. They all went on exactly this journey. They're well, all this exactly in- makes me think about what we talked about a couple weeks ago, which is, you know, Google and Apple no longer shipping chargers in their boxes. 
And this right. is the journey that everyone who has run out of old chargers is going to have to go on is this step-by-step slow travel from Vietnam all the way to, to the U.S. Uh, to get a new charger because they won't ship them in the boxes anymore. Not that it would be a different journey for that, but, you know, on an individual scale. Yeah, if you can get them, because that's kind of the, that's kind of the next chapter of all this is, you know, if every day it's something new, uh, it's not as bad here in the U.S., but in the U.K., you know, you go to stores and like there's shelves that are bare right now. Yeah, wow. I, this. OK, so this was going to be what I was going to ask. Like, when when do you think this will recover? Um, you know, with, with kind of all the backups that have been happening, putting maybe the silicon and maybe we can't even separate that. I, I don't know if you can separate that from from everything else or not, um, that shortage aside. But when do you think things will recover to this kind of invisible everything working that we were taking for granted, um, you know, uh, up until last year? Yeah, I I don't I don't think um, I think it's going to be years. And, 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 and some of it comes down to things that have nothing to do with the supply chain, but have everything to do with manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know, like China is still pursuing doggedly pursuing their so-called zero COVID policy. And, you know, with Delta flying around, if China sticks with that, like they'll never stop shutting down intermittently entire cities, entire ports is a big, big bottleneck. Um, you know, and, and then, and then many, many factories. So it's like, well, what are we going to do? Are we actually going to like undo globalization? Because that's (laughs) the only way that we're going to uncouple ourselves from that particular pain point. And then, you know, on top of that, it's just like, you've got unrest in South Africa, shut down a port, didn't make the news because there's five other things that are even scarier. You know, you have, um, hurricanes, you have climate change. I mean, the ways that those things are disrupting, um, supply chains. I mean, I think that it's crazy, but it just, it really feels like the world changed kind of overnight. COVID was the biggest part of it, but suddenly there are just disruptions everywhere. And the way you see it is shortages and higher prices. And if you look at just the net of all the stuff that we buy, because we're such a consumer society and we buy so many different things, you know, when, when is all of that going to kind of get back to normal? Maybe never. Yeah. Yeah. I I went and, uh, you know, I got tags for a a car I bought today and like the, the, the Mastia RMV, she's like, wait a minute, you paid a lot over Kelly Blue Book. And I'm like, well, I don't know how often they update that, but like every used car is just massively appreciated this year because of like, they can't make new cars because the supply, uh, the supply chain is so disrupted. I don't think that's going to go back to normal next year. I just flat out don't. So, uh, I fully agree with you. Yeah. It's crazy to think it's the new normal, but it is. Mm -hmm. All right. Thank you so much, Christopher, for coming on the show and talking to us. Uh, where can people find you online and where where can they buy your book? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, apparently you can get copies of the book so that supply chain hasn't been disrupted. Yay. It's all the usual places. Please buy it from your local indie bookseller. Um, this is my plug for um, Kobo if you like e-readers, because if you can get one of those, that's a way to um, permanently make it so you can buy ebooks from your indie bookseller if you're an ebook lover like I am, you know, or you can get it on Amazon and all the other usual places. That's really cool. Thank you for plugging indie bookstores. Uh, I am a big fan. And uh, what about yourself? Um, yeah, you can find me on Twitter. It's at Mims, M-I-M-S. Um, just Wall Street Journal, you know, every week, uh, I'm writing a column there and there'll be a lot more on this topic and related ones. Well, it's a, it's a truly wonderful book. Uh, I was, you know, when I heard about the premise, I'm like, how, how thrilling can a supply chain book really be? And I'm like, I'm like, what's going to happen next? Where is it? You know, it, it really is a great book. I just wish you all the success in the world. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for having me on your podcast. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your 
business. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering. I wonder if they use robots. Making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template, and then you use drag and drop tools to make it all your own. And then maybe you go back to the professionally designed template because you're not a designer. But even so, you can still customize the look and feel, the settings, the products you have on sale and more with just a few clicks and make something that you are thrilled with. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Your content automatically adjusts so it will look great on any device, which is, shockingly, uh, how most people view their websites. It's mobile. Sad for us with who make videos <laughs> for big, beautiful screens, but it's the truth, and you have to get used to it. You'll also get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They even have 24-7 award-winning customer support if you need any help. And they'll let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, as well as giving you everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there to the world. You can use Squarespace to turn your big idea into a new big website, to showcase your work with incredible portfolio designs, to publish your next blog post, to promote your business, to announce an upcoming event, and so much more. If you are intrigued by this idea, if it's finally time for you to do the thing, go to squarespace.com rocket for a free trial with no credit card required. And then when you're ready to launch, use the offer code ROCKET to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That is squarespace.com slash ROCKET. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code ROCKET to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for us at ROCKET. <laughs> Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of the show and all of Relay FM. Well, well, well. Our globe-spanning episode continues. South Korean President Moon Jae-in has signed a law requiring companies like Google and Apple to allow app developers to use different payment systems than the ones built into the phones. So reports the Wall Street Journal, which is going to be the theme of this episode as well. <laughs> as you know, Apple currently requires you to pay through the App Store for in-app purchases and takes a shoop. 30% swipe off the top, though in the past year, it's also introduced a reduced amount for developers earning less than a million dollars from the App Store. That, that's uh, cumulatively who have earned less than a million so far. It's been the subject, Apple has been the subject of an antitrust lawsuit since Epic protested this system. Epic, who has earned so many millions of dollars, uh, protested this last year by allowing players to bypass that and buy V-Bucks directly with a 30% discount, representing that 30% off the top. Um, now, it seems that the South Korean government has come down firmly on the side of, hey, Apple, don't. Um, and also Google as well. We're including you in this. If Apple and Google don't comply with the new law, uh, which is part of South Korea's Communications Act, they could be fined up to 3% of their South Korean revenue. Owie! <laughs> Google has come out with a statement reminding everyone that Android is free and that they need money to operate an app store. And they say, quote, We'll reflect on how to comply with this law while maintaining a model that supports a high-quality operating system and app store, and we will share more in the coming weeks uh, in what is possibly the most annoyed tone that I have heard <laughs> from a company's statement <laughs> in my history of doing this show. Um, notably, Google also takes a uh, reduced 15% cut from store revenue for developers who have yet to earn a million dollars. Apple has also made a statement and they argue that the law could put users at risk of fraud, could undermine privacy and make parental controls less effective, all leading to distrust of the App Store. No one is happy about it. And I believe my co-hosts on this show <laughs> are also unhappy about it. Hit me up with those fresh opinions. 
it's not just this. It's also like we had a huge settlement with uh, Epic, and uh, basically a hundred million dollar thing. It, it, it was wasn't funded. with Epic. It wasn't right. with Epic. Sorry, sorry, I misspoke. But there was basically uh, there were some changes to the App Store rules. I swear to you, Christina, I've read five separate articles on this, and I cannot tell if it's important or not. So can it's you not. please, Christina, explain it to me? Okay. So <laughs> so. I want to talk about the South Korea thing first, and then we'll talk about the other announcement that happened at the end of last week. Okay. So first talking about the South Korea thing. This is interesting. This is basically um, the first time that we're seeing this, although, as you mentioned, this is not the first country that is maybe wanting to enforce this, where where the country is actually saying um, you have to offer alternate payment systems. Um, meaning that rather than paying through Apple, you would have to be able to use, uh, you know, like like Samsung Pay or a- another payment system that a developer might choose. You know, if they wanted to use Stripe, I- I'm sure that in South Korea they would be using. Um, I-, I don't know what the uh, like it, it what their what their WePay equivalent would be. Um, it, I-, I actually do, but I can't think of the name of it because I have some of the little dolls. I think line. Uh-huh. There's line and there's another thing. Yeah. So it's so it's bizarre because they have this whole ecosystem of like a chat app. And then there are all these um like characters that are part of this chat app, but they're part of this whole ecosystem where people pay for things. And when I was in the airport in Seoul, I bought some of these things because that's what I do. Um anyway, they are are clearly saying, okay, we want, we are going to enforce at like a you know. <laughs> country level, uh, the fact that these stores now have to accept alternate payments. Now, how that will be enforced, how that will be, you know, like what the requirements will be, how much, um, I guess, like autonomy they will allow the companies to, in order to comply for this, to be able to say, like, are you able to say, like, is this an, there are a lot of questions that we don't have the answer to. Like, for instance, uh, uh, John Gruber pointed out, like, how long do these companies have to, um, you know, like, uh, I guess um, to figure it out. How long does Google have to reflect? Basically, yeah, exactly. Like, like how long before this has to be enforced? Right? Like, like what's that period of time? Uh, we don't know because it's expected that it'll be signed in two weeks. Um, uh, I should point out that the uh, South Korean government and uh, a number of the tech companies there are part of what is known as a shy ball, which is basically where you have very, very, very large conglomerates that are involved in every aspect of the supply chain of, and basically every aspect of manufacturing and every aspect of almost anything that's made in the country, um, you know, from, from textiles to hospitals to electronics to other things, are, are largely controlled by um, a small number of, of major conglomerates, which are then run by uh, or controlled by, by families. And there's been corruption there in the past. And the, you know, uh, former prime minister of uh, South Korea went to jail. Uh, the current head, uh, de facto head of Samsung is still in jail. He will be getting out soon, apparently, like for, for fraud charges. There's a lot of stuff that <laughs> happens within the the South Korean kind of uh, political system, which to me makes this somewhat more interesting because we don't know what impact any of that stuff like has on on why they made these decisions. But it, it's an interesting policy change. Uh, some developers I see are really happy about it. I personally don't like this. I personally don't like any government. And I would I feel identically if it was the US or the European Union or anybody else, I don't like any government coming in and saying to a business, we are going to require that you make these decisions. In most cases, in terms of like what types of payment processor you use, in most cases, because I don't believe that the governments adequately understand the businesses. I don't believe they have the user's best interests. I don't think they have the developer's best interests, you know, because there are a lot of questions I think that Apple and Google bring up that are, are, are good. Like Google says, look, we need revenue to operate these stores. On the one hand, Google, no, you, you make revenue in other ways. You could make this a lost leader if you needed to. But it is a fair point that these are certainly not um, without cost. And then Apple points out the trust aspect, and I think that's a fair one, which is to say, okay, if anybody can take a, a, a payment and you can make a payment through kind of any method you want, 
if a developer chooses an unsavory payment method and their payment processor gets hacked or they're doing something else unsavory, this is now taking place at the OS level. And the, mm-hmm. you know, Apple would have nothing that they could do. There'd be no recourse. Like, right. One of the advantages of the way the system is now is that it is all in one place. And, and there is, I think, a, a safety argument to be made there. Um, it's also, you know, I think negligible to be seen, okay, well, not negligible. I think what's interesting is that it seems like the South Korean government, and they call this an anti-Google tax, which is interesting. Uh, mm. We've been kind of talking about this in terms of Apple, but, uh, you know, uh, the vast, vast, vast majority of the app store sales and and the payments that happen in mobile phones in South Korea are on Android. And so uh, Google really seems to be the target here rather than Apple, but of course, both, both will be impacted. But it is interesting, there seems to be this conflation between the 30% cut, which is what the companies take, and uh, saying, well, this is what the payment processors charge as if allowing people to use different payment processors, you know, will will make up the difference. And and that's not true. As we've discussed before, payment processors, the percentages that they take can vary depending on transaction, depending on number of transactions, can depend on a lot of things. Um, and and uh, their percentages are often, yeah, you know, probably in, in the 3% range, uh, 2.5% to 3% range, at least in the U.S. I don't know about other countries. But then in addition to that, part of the reason you're paying that additional uh, money ostensibly is, as Google and Apple are saying, you know, to keep the, the store running, to keep apps served, um, to deal with things like fraud, to deal with things like, you know, refunds and, and, and taxes and stuff like that. And so it's unclear to me. It's like, okay, well, how do you account for things like the taxes and those other fees? And, and how is that going to impact the developers? Do they have to now manage that all themselves? And and would this even necessarily come out to be a better deal for them in all cases? In some cases it might, but in some cases, if you're especially if you're small, I think you could make the argument that's like, no, actually it's gonna cost us more and be a hassle and yet another thing we have to manage ourselves to to use a third party payment system. So we're just going to use the one that's built into the store. Yeah, a hundred percent. Uh you know, it's I I feel like not to be libertarian or whatever, but I feel (laughs) like I I feel like the government has a responsibility to like get involved with app store decisions when it's a it's there's a true monopoly at stake or a public safety thing at stake. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a compelling reason. From my understanding of this situation, I I don't see a case where this is really uh, benefiting the user. If that no, makes sense, I don't think and, it is. And just and I just I can't get on board with it. So uh, I 100% agree with you. Yeah, I really Apple's argument about security really resonated with me uh, as a person who has been getting so many phishing emails. And text messages just in the last week. You know who's after me again? The Arcturic scam people. The people who try to pretend that they are luxury outerwear retailer Arcturics but are not. They have my freaking number. Um, and so does fake CBS. But anyway, um, yeah, to me, the idea of a perhaps either a less than savory developer or somebody who has like co-opted an existing app uh, and is rerouting people to some third party payment system that isn't under anyone's supervision. Like that's the worst yeah. case scenario. And I think much like with some other topics that we've covered here for the user, I don't think that the, I, I think that Apple could be conflated with the villain in that scenario too, because the bad experience they're happening or having is happening on the Apple or the Google device. And yeah. people that that's where people's understanding of it is going to stop. Um, so to me, Apple's argument really rings true. Yeah, and that's where it has been. Now, now it is interesting when you go back because before the App Store, the way that people would buy apps typically would be there were kind of these other marketplaces. Oftentimes you had to go online on a website to, to get them and then find a weird way to sideload. But in some cases, you could get them directly from a carrier store 
on your phone, like you would download, like a, this is this is for the old people out there, a jar <laughs> file, which uh, which you would put on your razor or your Nokia or whatever, and that's how you would you would get an app. But you would buy it through your carrier. And when Android first came out, this was actually a thing that Google played with a little bit in a number of different countries because. Um, in a lot of other countries, people have bank cards, but they don't necessarily have credit cards. And so the act of taking payments the same way you would take payments through like the the, the Google uh, Play Store now or the, you know, the um, the Apple, the App Store are a little bit different because your bank card doesn't have like the Visa or the MasterCard or the American Express logo on it. So it, it the, the way that you get the money there is a little bit different. And so one of the ways that they would do this, um, especially in countries where people might not have access to those sorts of things is they would be like, okay, well, you can charge it onto your carrier. And then when you pay your phone bill, that's how you'll do this. And the carriers, of course, loved this because they were like, <laughs> oh, we get we get a cut of this, right? Um, but over time, you know, Google moved away from that. And they were like, no, we're going to have everything run through, you know, the Android market, which is what it was called then. And now, you know, Google Play. And you have had other um, app stores, you know, there's the Samsung store and and some other things that, that you can do and, and buy things through. Um, but it's it's been an interesting thing where you've seen the companies want to control that experience exactly as you said because this is who the the user has become kind of conditioned to trust. Mm-hmm. I will say uh, Microsoft, where I work, I don't have anything to do with this project, but uh, you know I um, I know a little bit about it because I was uh, involved a little bit in in the launch of uh, or the announcement, I guess, of, of Windows 11. The Microsoft Store's policies have changed, and the way that it works now is that you can. Developers can, um, and I think this is still rolling out. I don't think that this is, I don't know how many developers have already implemented this or not. But basically, if you don't want to pay any cut to Microsoft, you can bring your own payment processor. But the way I believe it works is that there's an API. It has to be a secure payment processor, somebody that's on some sort of approved list, and you're implementing that, and you're still making the payment through the Microsoft Store, but you are entering in credit card information in a separate way. And so it is taking you into a slightly different modal modality than if you were to just have it connected to your Microsoft account. Um, I don't mind that as an option if that's something that, you know, like Google or, or Apple wants to implement. I think that in a lot of cases, especially if you were to lower the percentage that you were taking from 30% to just a 15% mm-hmm. standard, I think that you could make the argument. I think a lot of developers would look at it and go, okay, unless I'm doing X amount in revenue and I have my own payment systems that are set up completely outside the store, like let's say I sell a web app or I sell a service or I sell something else that I'm not selling through one of these stores, I don't need to maintain a separate relationship with a payment processor who will handle my sales tax and and my my country taxes and all my other mm-hmm. stuff because that's that's an expense. If you're looking at it, if unless you're at like that level, I think a lot of developers, if the fee were reasonable, would be like, yeah, I don't want to bother. I'm just going to go ahead and roll this all up because they do get some value out of that. And so, yeah, you know, I, I feel like it's a shame that this is happening because I feel like both Apple and Google could have avoided this if they would have just lowered the fees to something more reasonable. Like, I don't think anybody or most people, I don't think, I don't even think most developers are like, I don't want to pay anything to Apple or Google. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense to me uh, because I want to make sure we have time for our third topic. Can you just briefly help me understand what these changes are and <sighs> Is it, is it a good thing? Speed no. running. It's $100 million. Some press reports are saying it's good. Others are it's, saying it's, it's, it's bad. It's completely meaningless. I don't know. Okay. Okay. It's completely meaningless. So why. basically, there's a settlement um, that, that Apple um, uh, filed with, with an app developer. Um, it's it's for $100 million. I think that uh, Ryan Jones uh, from App Flighty figured out that $30 million of that is going to go to the lawyers. Oh. So, uh, so already, we're off to a great start. Um, and the rest of them, I'm sure, will be kind of a, a tax write-off. Um, uh, I have we have a link in the show notes um, uh, to uh, um, Ben Thompson, who wrote a good thing. Um, uh, Michael Ty also uh, I have a link to his roundup link too. Um, but this uh, basically this settlement, the way that it works, every Apple kind of treated this as if, oh, look at this, we're going to now allow you to advertise. 
uh, to people or or made it they made it seem like you could uh, contact people kind of outside of the app store. And um, and and it seemed when I first read it, it seemed like it was a bigger deal than it was. It's not a big deal. They they've they've you know kind of made a couple of assessments. Oh, the way that I'd initially read it would be that in the app store they would tell you, hey, you can actually subscribe to this outside of the app store. Like if it was a service like a Netflix or a Spotify or whatever, which mm-hmm. as we have discussed before is forbidden. You can't even have a URL. And I thought that they were going to tell people, oh, you can do that outside the app store. You you don't have to buy this in the app store. No, that's not the case. If you have opted in to give the company your email, Apple has graciously said, well, if you have a customer email, you may email them to tell them that they can subscribe to your service outside of the app store and then log in through the app. Uh, how 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 wonderful of you, Apple, to allow a company to do something with an email address that they have already like gotten that from they a already have a, right that they have in a legitimate way. My understanding was that that wasn't even explicitly disallowed before. Yeah, no, it's a whole bunch of nothing. Basically, it's a bunch of smoke and mirrors, and um, I don't think that there were any substantive changes. This was like a really well-timed PR drop. And a lot of the reporting on it, I think, was really terrible because the the headlines and the write-ups were not accurate. So uh, TLDR, nothing has changed except that there's a settlement in a class action suit and um, lawyers got $30 out of the $100 million settlement. So congratulations to the lawyers. I, I don't know, Christina. You know, Apple said in their press release it was a really major the biggest change to the app store yet. So I, I mean, I, who are I, we going to believe, Christina? I, 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 I grew up on the stupid farm, so I'm just going to take Apple at their word. And you know what, Christina, after this, I don't know, you're off the show. I don't care to have a shill like you. <laughs> no, I uh, love you so much. Please never leave. This episode of Rocket is brought to you by Fastmail. Fastmail is putting you first by prioritizing privacy and usability. Unlike some other email services that can sell your information, Fastmail keeps advertisers out of your inbox by putting you in control of your data so that you can focus on your workflow, knowing that your privacy is protected with a business model that leaves advertisers out. Fastmail works great with the built-in mail, calendar, and contact apps on macOS and iOS, in addition to offering a great web client. The open source elements put you in control of your workflow with all of the tools to do things your way, so you can set up processing systems that eliminate unwanted mail and prioritize what's important automatically. Uh, That open source email tools, do you have feelings on this, Christina and Brianna? I love open source. 100%. It's great. Yeah. For over 20 years, Fastmail has been keeping customer data private. It's one of the longest operating and most trusted email services in the world. To be part of the very best in email, go directly to the source and try Fastmail. Just go to fastmail.com slash rocket to get started today. That's fastmail.com slash rocket for a free month and 10% discount off your first year. Our thanks to Fastmail for their support of this show. All right, we're going to so quickly fly through our dessert topic of the day. I know, I'm so sorry. The Elizabeth Holmes trial has finally begun with jury selection. After four years, which is only a little less time than our podcast has been running, (laughs) jury selection has begun for Holmes's fraud trial. Now, according to the New York Times, half or over half of over 200 potential jurors say they are familiar with the case. They've read about it, which totally (laughs) People in San Jose have heard about Elizabeth Holmes. What? What? Breaking news, and that's the topic. Now, uh, Holmes stands charged with fraud for her actions as founder of Theranos, the company that did not test patients' blood in any way that was useful or correct. Holmes and her ex-partner, Ramesh Balwani, have both pleaded not guilty, but the cases are being tried separately with uh, Balwani's trial maybe being held next year. It is, as far as I can tell, not scheduled yet. Previously, in 2017, the SEC deposed Holmes and she said, I don't know, 600 times over the course of questioning, which uh, 
people are saying could be damaging to her if she now tries to say that she does remember things a certain way. But I also (laughs) potentially see it as maybe helpful depending on how much of her defense rests on the idea of her being ignorant of what was actually going on at Theranos. What do we think about this? Are we so excited to follow the trial of the century? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Get ready for the next freaking two months of Rocket, listeners. <laughs> no, it's so good. There, okay, so there are two podcasts that I want listeners to subscribe to. One is from John Carreyrou, who, of course, is the Wall Street Journal reporter. See, again, I told you there'd here. be a theme. <laughs> exactly. Um, who uh, who broke the story, wrote the amazing book, Bad Blood, which is, God, I can't wait for the movie. Um, oh. He has a podcast out called Bad Blood, The Final Chapter. Um, two episodes of that are already available. And um, our friend um, Rebecca Jarvis, um, her podcast, The Dropout, is back for a second season, and it's also covering the trial. So, um, and I'm sure that there will be more because the content on Theranos will never, it's like Fire Festival. It's so good. I'm so excited. <sighs> this is my Christmas. I'm, I'm pumped for this trial. I mean, I'm really pumped for this trial. I've read Bad Blood like seven or eight <laughs> times. Wow. It's, it's, it's your like best favorite <laughs> story. It, well, it's just so fascinating. Yeah. Well, and the, the, so you know, she's married now. And Anne has a kid. <laughs> Good luck. Anne with has that. a kid. Good oh, luck. Oh, okay. Well, she has a type man. Like first guy was like 20 years older than her. The next guy's 10 years younger. Like you know what? Uh, props. Um, but yeah, she had a baby like six weeks ago. Like, uh, it, you know, um, there's there's got to be like a, a a private like mother's room where she can go to, you know, take care of the baby and pump like during like the proceedings, which I'm glad they're doing that for her. But uh, understandably, the prosecution was a little bit upset when they found that out because they're like, well, this is going to impact the jury. And it's like, well, Yeah. It is because how how are you not supposed to like think about yeah oh man if we send her to jail like this baby's mom is gonna be in jail like that's that's a thing to think about like that even though that's not an uncommon situation with people who are facing criminal charges you usually don't see it like yeah. that um so uh yeah this the the drama man I'm I'm excited it, it it'll be interesting to see how long it takes them to find a jury. <laughs> So, uh, real question, honest question. Like, we're all intelligent, thoughtful people. We all have opinions on homes. Do you think you could serve on that jury oh, and be God, fair? Oh, God, no. Sorry, hell no. I, I think I could. I, I've read Bad Blood, but I, I, I would be willing to hear if there's another side she could present and see if it was credible. I mean, I would look at that with an open mind. I, I personally have a hard time imagining what that would be. But Which is why you couldn't, yeah. with that, and, and that's why you couldn't serve on the jury. You know, I, yeah, I, I think I, of course, I would like to think you know that much. I could put aside the last four years and pretend to not <laughs> have reported on this show for this podcast, or this show, this case for this podcast but there's no way that they would that the uh prosecution or the defense rather would ever <laughs> would ever be like oh yeah we'll give you a shot <laughs> clear your mind <laughs> oh my god i don't oh know uh do we want to review i think the bets that have been made yes. on this yep. show about the outcomes yes. we have okay. yep yep okay. so so i i've bet $500 now uh, that, that she will not do any jail time. Um, mm-hmm. So if it's a suspended sentence or whatever, then that counts. So even if she's found guilty, if it's a suspended sentence, then then it doesn't count. So my, my, my bet is $500. She'll not do any jail time uh, with a concession that if they somehow come to a plea agreement, that doesn't count. So I, I, but that, that, that is my, that is my bet with Brianna. And Brianna is betting that she will do at least some jail time. I, I feel good about my odds. I do, but we'll have to see. We'll have to see. Look, I already lost five hundred dollars to the freaking Barney Bros, and like that's <laughs> annoying enough <sighs> as it is for the Andrew Yang thing. Which, whatever. <sighs> if I lose another five hundred dollars, fine. Um, you can all laugh at me. I, I will be happy to lose it because I would be happy if she goes to jail. But I just, uh, she's a mother. Like she played <sighs> it really well. I, I, I would love to know about like, like. It, in my perfect universe, whenever they make the Bad Blood movie with Jennifer Lawrence or whatever, I would love to have a scene that they create, because I'm sure this would be fictionalized, so keep that in mind, listeners. I'm fictionalizing this, but I would love to see a scene 
of her and the heiress or or heir like like a hotelier heir like boy toy like planning like looking at her ovulation cycle and like figuring out like <laughs> how she can get pregnant so that it will impede and like require them to to set the trial back and like make a statement so that every time she's going into court you know they have the photos of her with the bump and whatnot like i would love to see like that sort of gone girl type of thing where she's like thinking that far ahead because um a i really hope that's true because that's the elizabeth holmes that i can actually sort of get behind is like if she's like that conniving um if it's just like greed and that's less fun uh but b like i honestly think that's going to be the thing that's going to at least when it comes to sentencing that's going to really help her is assuming she's found guilty is you know like she's she's a a, a white blonde lady with a baby mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah so you have the gone girl you're taking the gone girl theory to the i hope Elizabeth so Holmes well okay look in, 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 in my like hope of hopes, dream of dreams. I don't actually think this is how she is, but in my heart of hearts, I like to think that Elizabeth Holmes is like an Amy Dunn and has had just this entire like Machiavellian plan, like from the get go. And and is that conniving? Honestly, I would, I would kind of respect that. I don't actually think it's the case. And I'm waiting for the movie about the two competing screenwriters who are trying to write the Elizabeth Holmes story and each taking a different tack on it. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. How deep does the hole go? Completely. All right. Well, we'll definitely be following up on this. You know us. Come on. Now, before we let you go today, I have to tell you that this episode of Rocket is brought to you by privacy.com. Now, I imagine... Imagine, listener, how I would feel had I clicked on one of the many phishing links in my inbox and signed up to receive free goose down jackets in a monthly shipment for for nothing. (laughs) Um, I would be pretty sad unless, unless I had, say, not given away my private bank information, unless I had created some kind of some kind of card with a number that would mask my real private information, but still allow me to be irresponsible with my money and make my own choices. Well, folks, privacy is the institution that will give me security and freedom all in the same beautiful, uh, beautiful gesture. Privacy is a tool that makes it easy to manage your financial lives online while keeping your most important information secure. By generating virtual numbers, privacy masks your bank information so you never have to worry about giving it out to people that you don't know online. Or imagine a scenario in which I wanted to take freedom away from myself. Well, I could do that by creating vendor-locked cards with price spending limits for myself to keep me under control at, say, the REI Labor Day sale. Uh, Really, there are so many other recent examples I could think of where I've needed to be kept under control, but luckily, I'm always safe. (laughs) Take back control of your payments, decide who can charge your card, how much, and how often, and you can close cards at any time. Plus, you can make sure that you're never accidentally billed twice or upgraded to another service without your consent. And privacy is partnered with the good folks at 1Password. You can create, use, and save privacy cards directly within your 1Password dashboard. And all virtual cards created in 1Password will have the same security benefits as your other privacy cards. So you can set spend limits, create single-use or merchant-locked cards whenever you want. Head to privacy.com slash rocket and sign up for an account today. New customers will automatically get $5 to spend on your first purchase. Go to privacy.com slash rocket and sign up now. That's a good URL too. That's got to be a story. Our thanks to Privacy for their support of this show and Relay FM. Alrighty, Christina, why don't you tell us what you're doing this week? I'm going to Los Angeles and uh, because it's Labor Day weekend. So I'm going to um, L.A. and I'm going to see a long-delayed concert, unfortunately, Taylor Swift, which I was originally supposed to see the, the same weekend that this was originally planned, was not rescheduled. 
which I'm still sad about, but I'm going to see uh, Green Day, Weezer, and Fall Out Boy. Wow. And, um, which, yeah, which I'm very excited Welcome about. Welcome to 2005. At Dodger Stadium. Uh, I know. That's what I'm saying. It is 2005. And I'm very excited. So uh, me and like, uh, like you know, 80,000 of my fellow teens will be at Dodger Stadium uh, for that. And then um, my, my friend Catherine, um, uh, uh, who I'm going with, um, uh, me and her family are going to um, – go to Santa Barbara uh, for, for the weekend. So oh, fun. I'm going to LA and oh uh, I'm going to be very happy in Southern California. Yes. Nice. Brianna, what about you? Oh God, I'm working. I'm oh. so far behind. I I worked all day. I'm going to work after this podcast until like two in the morning. I am oh, so no. far behind on literally everything. So uh, I'm desperately trying to play catch up, just being real. All right. Um, I am going up to Portland for Labor Day weekend, but oh, more importantly, both of you. I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> I've taken up upholstery. Wow. Yeah. I made a chair. And by made, I mean, I recovered part of a chair. That's awesome. Isn't it like one of the original like arts or like, like home arts or something like that? Like maybe I should learn the history of my new hobby. Um, I've been wanting to do upholstery for a long time and I've always put it off because of like space concerns. But then I realized like, you know, you can upholster small furniture and if you want to do something, you should just do it. And then I found a chair um, that I really, really loved and at Housing Works. So I bought it and I just bought a bunch of fabric and foam and stuff. And so far I've upholstered the seat and it looks great. And uh, hopefully next week I will have finished the back of the chair, which is a little more challenging because it involves sewing. But yeah, I'm a I'm a homemaker now. Surprise! Yay! Do That's you, awesome. Do you think you could upholster a trim panel for the driver's side? Uh, uh, a lower uh, trim panel, footwell trim panel for a 1986 Porsche 911. Call me in a few years. <laughs> this is what I was going to ask. I was like, can, can can you pimp Bree's car? Yeah, I need that. There's a whole. I'll, I'll I'll Google upholster cars and then I will come back to you with exactly what yes. I said just now. Okay, before <laughs> that, I'm not even joking. Watch old episodes of Pimp My Ride. I'm not even joking because yeah. my favorite part was there was like this this uh, Hispanic guy who was awesome who like had all these tattoos and stuff and was like the best upholsterer and like like seamstress like you've ever seen in your life and would do amazing stuff to the interiors of these like jalopies that would come in and like he like his sewing skills were so good so I'm not even joking like get with you know X to the Z to that like get 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 with uh, get with exhibit and and watch old episodes of Pimp My Ride a underrated show b very good for your upholster um uh, i'm gonna check that out hobby. i'm very I've, I've been you know marathoning interior design shows while i've X been gonna give uh, it to you cutting and anyway. measuring and stuff i i'm legitimately gonna show you this part and see if you can help me so. show me the part show me the part uh also i should mention over at polygon we're doing a retro gaming week just like looking <gasps> at retro gaming today so I feel like <gasps> da, 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 both da. of you could be interested in that. Wait, and probably wait, 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 so will many of our how listeners. Retro? How retro? Are you talking N64? Are you talking Commodore? How? I'm looking at... retro for you is not retro for me. <laughs> well, luckily, people like Christopher Grant, uh, certified retro gamer, are in this <laughs> package writing about the Mr. 101. Or the Mr. I, see, I don't even know. Um, yeah, and CRT yeah. TVs and pinball mm-hmm. machines and the original final fantasy so there's a lot of stuff that'll be coming out okay. about genuine old old people stuff yep by which old i mean people stuff what yeah. no all right <laughs> <laughs> stuff <laughs> okay brianna where can we find you online <gasps> I uh, can find me at the retirement home <laughs> <laughs> just uh <laughs> Just wheel my bones in cool. there and uh, wheel the mail in. Uh, that'll be fine. Uh, or you can see me at Brianna Wu on Twitter. Though I'm taking a Twitter break, I took your uh, advice, uh, Simone. I just deleted it. I'm, nice. I'm done for now. Yay. Happy for you. Uh, yep. Christina, what about you? You can find me at film underscore girl on the Twitters and the Instagrams. Um, hotel tour will be coming soon uh, this weekend. So uh, actually, it'll be coming Thursday as this episode goes up. So uh, you will get to see whatever place I'm staying at at LA Live. Um, so that'll be exciting. And uh, yeah, so uh, film underscore girl on the Twitters and the Instagrams. And uh, yeah. 
All right. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doomquasar and at youtube.com slash polygon. Thank you so much for listening to Rocket. If you liked it, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Help other people find the show. And uh, we'll see you next week. This episode is terminated. 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 Terminated.